Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. A special thank you to our sponsor, Equithrive. This one goes out to all the horses with the crusty necks, fleshy backs, and girthy middles. The horses who gain a few extra pounds simply by breathing air. The easy keepers on limited pastures. The folks at Equithrive know there is nothing easy about easy keepers. That's why they have formulated products just for you. Equithrive's Metabarol is a pelleted supplement that is scientifically proven to support healthy metabolic function and a healthy inflammatory response in horses. It's bona fide joint and metabolic support, all in one easy to feed pellet. Visit equithrive.com today and use the promo code HUMBLEHOOF to get 20% off your first order plus free shipping. www.equithrive.com. For the last 10 years, as my interest in track systems for horses has grown, I've followed countless track system boarding facilities and liveries on Facebook from all over the world. One of them that really caught my eye was Abbott's View Track Livery, which is owned and run by Amy Dell Anthony. And something that was really cool was last year when I noticed that Amy actually had written and published a book all about how to set up and run track systems for horses. I was super excited about it because I was opening my own track system boarding facility and I could take all the ideas and help I could get. So I bought her book, read it cover to cover, was absolutely obsessed with it. You can get it on Amazon, by the way. And I reached out to Amy to see if she would chat with me a little bit about track systems, how to start them, how to get things going, some practical ideas for it, what it's good for, and to sort of talk about how her passions came to be. So I thought we could just start with how you became interested in uh, track systems and, you know, what kind of led you to having your own Abbott's View track livery. So, I mean, what led me to tracks was my horse in particular. I'd always had, before I had Buck, who is my horse now, he's a rescue cob and they're known in the UK, we call them good doers, which means he doesn't need to eat much to maintain his weight. And it gives you kind of the false pretense that they're going to be easy to look after and they're not. (laughs) You're actually better off having what we call poor doers and feeding them up in terms of like the, the grass and stuff that we have in the UK and many other countries. It's just too high in sugar and stuff, as you know. So when I got him, I was constantly battling with his weight. He was only two when I got him. And obviously I was not going to back him until he was five or six because I wanted him to be fully mature. So exercising wasn't an issue other than like in-hand work and stuff, you know, and there's only so much you can do on foot with a young horse especially I tried muzzling him but then he was miserable like he would just run over neighing at me and I felt awful and I was you know I was essentially starving him because I didn't know that you weren't supposed to do that I just thought well you know I'm just restricting how much he can eat but actually just wasn't getting enough which you know in the long term made him fatter because all his stress hormones kicked in but I can't remember how exactly I discovered track systems. I think somebody bought me Jamie Jackson's Paddock Paradise book, yeah. which kind of like started the cogs turning. Yeah, my mum bought, bought it for me. 
and I kind of read it and was like oh this makes sense but it was kind of a bit too on the natural side for me in terms of like it was very much you know like they play cougar noises on the track and things like that and they say don't go onto the track because it's the horse's sacred space and things like that and I thought well I wonder if I can sort of tone that down a bit and make it something that works sort of in a domesticated environment so I set up one acre track for my horse and some Shetland ponies and instantly saw the difference and the way that I came to it as a business was I've always been really like driven business minded I knew I wanted to run my own business and I had this whole business plan for a normal yard you know I'd had it drawn out I had stables had like an in a beautiful U shape with a menage in the middle and then I was like, oh, I'm going to come to them a track. <laughs> I then thought, but what if no one wants to come? You know, if, like, I can't just build this big track. You know, it's really new. And like, I mean, my, I, I live literally right next door to a traditional livery. And she thinks I'm mad. Mm-hmm. Um, even putting my horses on a little acre, she was like, what are you doing? They need grass, you know. So I just started up really, really small and sort of tested the water, really, rather than investing it all, building it all like I was going to originally do with a big bank loan, because I thought, well, I'll be able to fill a normal yard pretty easily. But my heart just wasn't in it. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, I mean, I think a lot of people listening know what a track is because I tend to talk about it quite a bit. But can you kind (laughs) of explain for those who might not know, like, what does a track system entail and, you know, why is it set up the way it is? So, I mean, the most basic track you can possibly get is if you just think of or take the paddock that your horse is currently in and you just make a fence around the outline of it, like another fence on the inside. So you you create a track, you know, around a paddock, around your farm, wherever you want it. It can be small, it can be big. And the idea is that, you know, if they were in that same paddock that the track's built around, they just mooch about in the middle, don't they? You know, eating grass, grazing really slowly. But when you fill the track, and you put resources around it, so your water, your hay, your shelter, and you spread it out, the horses are motivated to be moving in between those. And they move more. It restricts the amount of grass they can eat because, you know, you've only got a certain part of your paddock fenced. And then over time, you can add different surfaces and things onto the track that stimulate the horse's hooves in a way that they would naturally be stimulated if they lived in the wild. So it's just trying to mimic how a horse would naturally live in a domesticated world as best as we can obviously tracks aren't natural hay nets aren't natural fencing isn't natural but we've got to think of the picture of this is how this is the best we can do to give them what they're supposed to get basically right yeah and most places in my area and I think it's probably similar where you are you know traditionally kept horses they'll like go out during the day in a square paddock of whatever size you know stand in one spot to eat and then one spot to drink, (laughs) maybe move around and play a little bit with friends and then go inside at night. And I've had clients that have tracked their horse's movement, like put a little pedometer on their horse and found that they moved like even in that kind of environment, like maybe like a a mile or, you know, a few miles a day. But then I had one client who put a pedometer on her horse that lives out on a track 24 seven. And it was like upwards of 10 miles a day. It was like crazy the difference. And I think that's one thing that, you know, drew me to that is that, you know, these horses are made to be moving, you know, they're, they're, I mean, just like people, like we're not supposed to be sitting all day or lying down all day. Like it's better for our joints and our muscles and our bodies. So yeah, that's, 
I just kind of wanted to re- reiterate what you're saying that it's, you know, separating those resources is just so good for them. And not just even like the physical aspects as well. I always think it's really important to mention like the digestion side of it. Like even for people, you know, like you said, we're not supposed to sit down all the time. And if horses are still all the time, they're just like, we think how high, a lot highly likely colic is. That's because they're not moving. And if you can't move, your digestive system isn't moving, basically. And things get backed up and clogged up and, and don't go through the body properly. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and even mental health too yeah. for the horses. Yeah. That's a big part. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, can you tell us a little bit about some of the cases that you see come in? I mean, I know I feel that every horse benefits from a track, but can you give some examples of cases that you've seen really benefit? Yeah, of course. So my kind of yard as well, the way that I run is there's a lot of rehab sort of track systems. I do have rehabs, but mine, you know, I want horses to stay with me for the long, the long haul really especially as my horses are here, I want it to be settled numbers as much as it can be as a livery. You know, I probably have two to three changes a year um, because, you know, people's lives change, circumstances change, horses, you know, get whatever, for whatever reason. But I try and aim to have people that are going to stay. So the ones that I rehab as well, because I find it really hard if I rehab a horse, which I have done previously, and then it goes back to the environment it was in before and everything just goes back. So my facility is kind of built in a way that the horses will get better and stay better because they stay in this way, or I then help their owner set up their own track at home or in whatever circumstances they are. My favourite sort of rehab cases, like obviously when I first started, I did it for my horses to control weight. And when I then started it and did more research and started having different horses, I realised that actually it helped everything because it's not just about weight management. It's that you like we said earlier, it's about the mental health aspect. One of my favorite cases actually was a thoroughbred called Oscar, who we sadly lost this year to lymphangitis. But when he came, he was quite underweight and his feet were in the process of growing a new foot. He's kind of like halfway through the process of having had his shoes off, I think, a couple of months before. And he just I thought, mm, this is the first one I've had that's going to be it's quite skinny. I wonder how he's going to sort of be. And he just put weight on, on the track, you know, and maintained it because he was ad-lib. He could choose what he ate. And I think the biggest factor was he was happy. Like, mentally, you cannot get a horse. I mean, I've seen horses previously, you know, you have your skinny little thoroughbreds and you put them in a stable with big rugs on, you give them loads and loads of food and they just don't gain weight. And the owners are like, why aren't they gaining weight? It's because they're not happy. And if you're not happy, your body physically can't be happy. And this was reinforced with another thoroughbred I had come to me in spring last year. And literally, I'd say within three months, she was severely underway and she was at sort of the prime condition up to the point a couple of weeks later, I thought, hmm, she might be getting a bit too well, (laughs) (laughs) you know, which I kind of thought would never really happen um, on a track. But it's also important to say that, you know, they do they do need some of them need a little bit extra so they'll come away same with any rehab you know if it depends what you're rehabbing if you're rehabbing just body condition they might have a few extra feeds a day as opposed to the other horses they might have access to loose hay separate from the herd for a couple of hours a day but again it's about free choice so if I separate a horse and it's like no I want to go back I let them back in but yeah other than that the weight gain ones have been incredible and just watching their feet changes so I've had a lot come with laminitis and you know seeing that horse be able to walk again without being confined to a stable for months you know they still have free choice to move and 
just it's just incredible watching the changes it makes me very emotional <laughs> yeah and honestly like I want to comment on what you're talking about with the weight gain and the you know if the horse isn't happy then their body can't be happy and I think that just makes logical sense because if a horse is constantly stressed they're going to be their gut isn't going to be like absorbing the nutrients they're eating they're going to have ulcers they're going to be like burning calories just through the the stress of it all I've seen horses that are just like pacing back and forth or doing those, those, uh, stall vices because they're so, they're just so riddled with anxiety. And if you take all that away and their environment is just calm and the same, you know, they're expecting the same thing all the time. They're, they just know what their, their, um, management is going to be like day to day, then they can take that whole stress part out of the equation and their body doesn't have to compensate for that. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of reiterating like exactly what you're saying that it just makes, it makes sense to me, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could talk about it forever. Yeah. <laughs> right. I've had people come to me that, that say like, I cannot get weight on this horse or I can't get weight off this horse. And it's the same thing. It's the stress, you know, it's, you can put a horse in a stable and separate it because, you know, people think, well, they need separate needs to the rest of my herd. So they need to be separate, but then taking them away from the herd, taking away the free choice. You know, even if you're putting the horse in the stable to try and get it to lose weight and you give it like a really small hole, hay net, a double, double netted hay net, whatever, they might still put on weight because their stress hormones kick in and it just messes up the metabolic system completely. And they start piling the weight on because their body goes into starvation mode and their body thinks, we need to get weight on now. We're going to die. And again, vice versa with horses that have the opposite effect. You might shot a horse in a stable with loads and loads of hay, loads of big feeds, loads of rugs to keep them warm. But they're so stressed being in that stable, everything they eat, like you said, just doesn't get absorbed, just comes straight back out, basically, and they just don't get any weight on. Like the biggest thing is in being out, having their own free choice and being happy in a herd and and settled. That's the best thing we can do for either circumstance. Yeah. So it's kind of taking the idea of traditional management and turning it on its head of like everything that we thought we knew, we're sort of challenging that. But I've, I mean, horses I've seen on tracks have just flourished. So, um, it's hard. It's almost like you have to see it, you know? Yeah. And obviously, you know, I bought your book, which is so amazing. Congratulations for publishing that. Um, it, you, it was live on Amazon December, 2022, right? Oh, I can't, yeah. yeah. I think, uh, end of November actually. Okay. Um, oh yes. Yeah, it must've been I think right. It was like, I think it was like three days at the end of November. I managed to get it out, but yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Pretty> <laughs> and for those who haven't heard of it, it's horse track systems. Um, actually, if you want to say the full name, I know there's a little subtitle. Yeah. And the subtitle is a how to guide to a healthy horse in body and mind. Yeah. And it's just, it's incredible. So it addresses so many different aspects of track systems, which, I mean, we could spend multiple episodes just talking about every aspect of track systems because there's so much that they can help. But I would love to talk a little bit about um, some of the practical things or or why don't you outline a few of the practical things that people might have to consider if they're thinking of setting one up? I mean, there's a lot, but it isn't that overwhelming. You know, a lot of people, I remember when I first started and I thought, oh, I don't know what I don't know how, what width to make them. I don't know how long to make it. Do you have to have big areas, small areas? You know, all of that stuff starts going through your head. But, you know, the basics are you need safe fencing, a shelter, and you need to know where you're going to put your food sources, and everything else will come later. I mean, like I said, my first one was on an acre, and all I had was a few hay boxes, natural shelter, and a, and a water trough. And even that was enough for my horse to start losing weight 
without any other intervention from me. Yeah. And actually one question that I had, cause you know, in, in order to maximize movement, you know, I, I would separate the hay as far from the water as possible just to get them walking more. And obviously that increases, you know, labor for the person who's managing the property. If, if that's not convenient to just, I mean, for, you know, in traditional, traditional boarding situation, the hay is usually next to the water, at least in my area. So you just fill up the water, toss a flake of hay over the fence and they're right next to each other. But then that also means the horse literally can shift a few feet. So how do you, how do you manage that at your property where the resources are separate, but like, is it, is it, I mean, it probably is more labor intensive, but how do you make it easier for you as the property manager? Yeah, I mean, it is more labor intensive and it will be for me as well, because I run it, you know, I've got 16 horses um, at the minute. So it's not like my little original track of three where I could just potter about and put hay out um, with a wheelbarrow. If you're going to do it on a big scale like me, you need machinery. I have a quad bike and a big trailer and twice a day I drive out with hay nets and pop them out at different hay stations, collect the old ones in and fill them up. And so that by the time you come to the next ones out, they're all ready. We also put out big bales as well. And the hay nets we use are called nibblies hay nets. Um, They're like a really soft mesh and then they're knotless so they don't cause any damage to teeth. And the big bales we put out, we double net. But they're kind of like a backup for if the hay nets start to run low, say overnight when I'm not there. So they're always, they've always still got food. It's just they have to work a little bit harder for that once the hay nets are gone. And those I do have up sort of nearer where sort of the hay barn um, and the shelter is. But yeah, I mean, by putting, it's, it's putting those hay nets out twice a day that really gets them moving. And it also sparks a bit of excitement, which is silly because it's the same every day. But you know, horses, they're like, woohoo! Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's hay! It happens twice a day, every day, but we're just as excited as we were this morning. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and they all just get moving again. If you make like, I, I see some tracks, um, you know, this isn't a criticism because I did it at the start too, where you think, oh, to cut my labor down, I will just put big bales of hay out. But then the horses will just park at that big bale. And I mean, like five or six of them can share a big bale at a time and they won't move. And it completely defeats the point. You know, you've got to have hay in little areas spread about. And it's trial and error as well, because sometimes you get a really close-knit herd that want to be together all the time. So you have to have, like, different hay stations with, like, six hay nets for six horses, a herd of six, so they all can eat together. Whereas I find that, you know, my herds have little sort of groups within them, and those horses will go off and eat together, so you can spread it out even more. But again, that depends on the herd, and is a little bit of trial and error when you first take your track up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, the, the constant movement with, you know, moving from hay station to hay station, how do you, I mean, this is a question for my area. I know it's a question for your, your area. How do you manage the footing and prevent mud? So in the winter, I always say to people that, you know, like you don't need to spend a fortune on loads of surfaces. Your track doesn't need to be fully surfaced. It's great if it is, and you can afford it, do it, you know, the ones that are out there that are are fantastic but I mean me personally as well when it came to looking at my tracks I kind of had to make a decision whether I invested the rest of my money in better fencing or I invested it in surfacing um so I obviously chose the better fencing but I made sure I had a really big area of hard standing up the top where the shelter is and where those big round feeders is and where the water is so those things are together and you know then in the winter like for example now in january here in the uk 
I mean, I'm looking out my window now and it is hammering it with rain <laughs> and wind. And because it's been like that, I've told my staff this morning to just put the hay nets on hard standing. So on those days, they won't get as much movement. But I'm talking a month or two out of the whole year. Right. Um, you know, the rest of the year, the hay is out on the tracks. And you kind of don't want to pull it off the tracks too early because a little bit of mud is a good thing. It's the best way to get rid of the grass. <laughs> oh, you know getting the horses out on it and I also you know every year I extend my tracks surfacing a little bit more but I don't ever want to get to the point where it's completely fully surfaced because I actually think they like rolling in mud you know they go out and choose to do it mine have the choice where they want to eat the hay and the hay is either on hard standings or we have loose like at the minute well it's when it's really wet we'll have some loose out on the tracks and more often than not they go out and roll and come back on and we'll eat on the, on the hard standing, but yeah. they still have the choice to go and roll in the mud, if you know what I mean. Right. And like when it, it's very hard to pick surfaces as well. Like a lot of people struggle with it and think, well, if I put this down, it's going to be too hard for them to run on. Or if I put sand down, I can't feed hay from it. So having a mixture is key as well. But I would say earth is the only thing that you can feed from. Isn't too hard. Absorbs impact. It just doesn't work when it's really, really wet. Yeah. <laughs> so you, ha- you have to have surfacing somewhere for the moments when it isn't working. Right. And I've seen some people who add like obstacles around the track. Do you do anything like that? Yeah, we have quite a few different um, like size logs and branches and things out on the track. But again, I'm very into free choice. So I don't set them in a way the horses have to go over them. Right. I have some older horses here that are arthritic and say they're all having a gallop and they're lower in the pecking order they might get pushed towards having to be going over it whereas the way that I've spread them out they can just just duck around it whereas the younger ones will tend to choose to jump things which is always quite fun to watch yeah yeah I've kind of debated that myself just because you know getting a tractor or a UTV or something like that around them is something that's important to me so I've seen some that they have these yeah, the, I see some people that have these really intense, like rock pat, like uh, passages and like logs that take up the entire section. And my first thought is like, how are they getting a wheelbarrow or like a tractor around that? And I'm sure that they've figured out a way to do it. I just didn't. I just I have to think for myself how I would practically want to, you know, manage where I'm yeah. doing it. You know. it's the same with things like putting down sand and stuff as well like you've got to be really careful it's not too deep because again like imagine trying to pull drive a a tractor over that with a heavy bale on the front you might sink (laughs) so everything that I've got you know like the limestone you can drive the tractor over that's my favorite surface but I'm going to have sand pits put in this year and they're going to be like in a corner of the track with a gap that I can drive a tractor quad bike all the horses can walk through if they don't want to use it you're right it's really important to make sure that not just the horses but you can get through it with all sorts and my log features are spread out in a way I can weave through them with the quad bike I do know um one of the other track liveries another track liver I know in the UK had like a beautiful like rock section and I know that she's now moved it and she moved it and made it into a rockery instead and hides and uses it as a forage area instead oh cool um, for that exact reason, because she just was like, I can't get my tractor over it. So I think, and actually that's one of the pictures that gets shared a lot. And every single time she's like, I don't have that anymore. But if my tractor just 
if my track record fly over it, then I would have it back. So, yeah. you know, you do have to be practical when you when you think about these things for sure. Right. And I think the, one of the great things about tracks is that you can make it as as involved or as simple as you want to. Um, and it's yeah, very and individual. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's actually why I'm starting with electric fencing so that I can see wh- what areas get wetter in what seasons and just a- adjust the track based on, based on the horse's usage of it. And then, you know, maybe eventually put in more permanent fencing once I see what works best on this property. But it's something that's Definitely. so, it's so, you're able to adapt it in so many different ways, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it's one of the main things I say in my book as well, actually, is don't do lots of permanent things straight away because you're right. Like, what if you, uh, I don't know, build a sandpit in an area that turns out to be really boggy or the horses decide that's their favorite toilet area and then you've got a sandpit just being used as a loo. Right. Um, I always say to have it for at least, you know, a year of each season to see what happens and when and what where you need to surface, where you can get away with not surfacing, you know, where to situate certain things. And even now I'm still moving stuff about and what this will be my eighth year. But that's also from the side, the terms of it makes it more interesting for the horses. So making sure I move hay locations and things like that. So they don't just get set on knowing where it's going to be. Right. Exactly. A special thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Cavallo. For our humble hoof listeners, they are offering 20% off their Cavallo Trek hoof boots using the coupon code HRN at checkout. The Trek is the world's most popular and versatile hoof boot and Cavallo's toughest trail boot, while also doubling as an option for therapy or rehab. The front closure system makes it easily adaptable to various hoof shapes, and the TPU upper design allows for maximum strength while minimizing weight for the comfort and ease of movement for your horse. These are recommended by vets and trainers and also loved as transport boots by barrel racers, show jumpers, dressage riders, and everyone in between. Again, for 20% off a pair of treks, use the code HRN at checkout at cavallo-inc.com. And I know obviously we talked a little bit in the beginning about how you do have a lot of permanent borders there. And you did mention that you have some rehab cases. So I would love to talk a little bit about hoof rehab cases that you might have, obviously for a hoof podcast, either ones that you've had in the past or currently have is there like a specific hoof case that you can talk about? I'm very bad at documenting the hoof ones. I don't know why. I think it's because sometimes I felt like posting hoof photos on social media can be a bit of a minefield. Oh my goodness. So yes. Many, so many different trimmers with so many different opinions. Yes. Um, but I've had, I mean, I had one horse in particular that was a navicular case and the owner had been told that this horse would be put down if it wasn't shod that would never get over the navicular and she tried everything he'd been stabled constantly and then started to go out a little bit and every time that he went out it was just such I think it was just such a big change his feet had just not had any stimulation at all from being inside to suddenly going out it just looked like it was failing when actually she started researching into sort of this way of of treating navicular in terms of getting the shoes off you know getting a good trimmer in that can balance them properly and also not take too much off at once um i've seen a lot of trimmers that come out and they have this image in their head of this is what the foot should look like yeah. so they just chop the toe off 
Right. Um, and then the horse is really, really, really lame. We actually had some, a trimmer come out and do that to us. He was quite newly qualified. She didn't, you know, she didn't mean to, but she'd been newly qualified. She'd come out. She was like, this is how the hoof is going to look and took too much toe off. And the horse had to be in boots for about three months, which wasn't great. But yeah, this, this little horse from having, I don't know, two years of failed trial and error of traditional management, boots and pads, all sorts, came to mind, had his shoes off you know they always quarantine for sort of two weeks in a pen anyway and I was thinking mm, he's really not found I'm not sure how it's gonna go and he had to be booted for a little while just in this front and just literally all it was the track that did everything once he got out in that herd his feet just changed it was like and you could see again I wish I'd photographed this foot because you could see the changes at every single trim cycle (laughs) he would have been a really good one if I'd really thought I should take pictures of this I'm getting better at that now because you know like and every time my trim would come out she'd be like oh look this is this is this angle slightly changed now we can do this to get it better another one of my favorite ones is is a lammy case who was actually owned by one of my staff members and she again was told by a vet you're you have two options you can shoe this horse or you can put him down um, which is very drastic. <laughs> and obviously she was working for me at the time and she just was like, can I bring him to you? Can, can I try that? And I said, absolutely. He's back in full work, you know, and he's not, I don't think he's had a day footstool since his diagnosis. And, you know, obviously after the, the first initial acute uh, laminitis attack, um, just through changing his diet from being, you know, what causes the inflammation, normally high sugar, and getting him out in a herd and moving. You know, he lived out before. So it wasn't like he was completely stable and stuff. He only started to become stable when he had the, the lamy attack. But yeah, just I love those ones where people have said this this horse, you know, is is a, is at the end. And they're, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> Laminitis is not a death sentence. You know, I don't even like I've had horses come, I've got one now, quite an old boy called um Bob who he previously had laminitis, you know, way before he was at mine. And he does have a degree of rotation in one of, one of his feet that has mostly righted itself. But you can still slightly see his hoof angle is off. But he's sound and happy. And the way that he, the management he's on now, um, you know, unless you know anything about hooves, you wouldn't notice. So, you know, even if they've had it so badly that it's started to deform the foot, they can still come back from it and live a full life. Yeah. And honestly, what truly devastates me is the amount of horses that are put down just because owners aren't aware of other options or aware of the fact that there is something that can be done. And that's, I mean, that's kind of how I felt when my horse was diagnosed with a navicular disease. And it's what brought me to Rockley Farm in the UK, which is what got me started on, you know, the track system idea is you know, seeing these horses come in that were told that they had, you know, a 5% prognosis of ever being sound again, and then Mm. coming back out on the other end, back in full work, and like not even just surviving, but back in full work. And obviously that's not true. You know, there's no guarantees. You're not going to have every single, um, you know, you can't say that every single case will 100% be back in work and you know, it's all going to be rainbows and butterflies because that's not true in anything. But like the fact that there's this option that people often just don't know about. And when you're at the end of the road, because I was, I was ready to put my horse down. Mm -hmm. When you're at that point, what do you have to lose? You know, like, you know, either they're going to be euthanized because there's nothing else 
that you think you can do, or there's a chance that they can have a happy, comfortable life for many more years. Like that's, I, that's what made me try it is I'm like, well, okay, I can't not try this and just, yeah. you know, put him down. Like <laughs> he's, you know, there's, there's just there, my, my, just my heart wouldn't let me do it. So no, I'm so pleased. I'm yeah, so and, glad that you felt like that because I see so many go the other way. Yeah. And he is knock on wood, my horse since the last few years, I, he has been the best he has ever been, you know, out 24 seven on he's, I'm moving him home to my property soon, but, um, he's on, um, kind of like a track system set up. They didn't do it on purpose, but they have to go through. (laughs) I know it's kind of funny. Um, they have to go through an alleyway that is completely surfaced to get between various grazing areas. So At first I was nervous to move him there because there was access to grass. And I was like, oh, I don't know how he will be with grass. But just the fact that he has to move, you know, from from his water down through this huge, you know, crushed stone surface alleyway down to get to the grazing area. And then he has to move through another alleyway to get to another grazing area when he's bored of that one. It's I mean, it was within a month or two. I, I was at the point where I'm going to put him down. I'm going to move him to this property and give him six months. I was just like, that's it. Like, I can't do this anymore because I can't see him in pain. And then two months later, I'm like, oh my goodness. I don't remember the last time I saw him take a lame step. Like, and that was just, it was crazy to me that just that movement and stimulating that foot and giving him the ability to just live calmly. He doesn't have any expectations. He has lots of you know, access to forage and friends. He's able to socialize. He just like, he can live like a horse. And all of a sudden, just, you know, the years of me trying to fix it myself, <laughs> it, yeah. just, it just made me feel like, oh my goodness, I wish I knew about this sooner. <laughs> so sorry. That was my little soapbox there. I know that <laughs> I'm supposed to be asking you questions, but. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I absolutely love hearing like anyone's story. Like this is a thing that like, everyone I speak to, we just end up going off on a tangent. <laughs> But I think the hardest part of that as well is when you have professionals telling you it's the end, you know, because so many, so many vets, so many trimmers, and it's not their fault. Like it's the way that they're trained. Um, I worked in the veterinary industry for, for a short time. You know, there is so much to cover. If you think like a doctor learns about people, you know, a vet learns about all these different animals and then goes on to train to be an equine vet. I mean, that's how it works in the UK anyway. You start off with small animal and then you go on to like to equine. But even then, it's it's so vast. There's so much to learn. Um, and it's taught in very specific ways. So, you know, none of the textbooks will say anything about this yet because the, the old fashioned ways of, of shoeing, because they people think they work because, you know, they're a plaster and they cover up the symptoms. People think that that's, that's still OK to, to use, you know, and stabling is always recommended and shoes are always recommended. And it, it's, it's education more than anything. Rather yeah. than even people saying, I don't agree with it. It's just that they don't know. Right. And it's also, like you said, it's really scary. Well, I'm, how I'm thinking, it's really scary to go against these professionals that are saying things often in absolutes. Yeah. And yeah. and it's hard because, you know, they do have a lot of education. And yeah, it's just, it's hard to go against professionals that are saying things that, you know, might not be the best for the horse. Yeah, and again, they're saying it not because it's it's just because they don't know that there's another option. So as far as the knowledge that they know, looking at the the situation in front of them, they're like, well, if the shoes aren't fixing this, 
and the book and the rest isn't fixing this and that's it that you know that's as far as sort of the knowledge goes you know I'm, I'm really lucky with with my vet one of my vets I've got quite a good relationship with you know when we first started working together she would recommend shoes and things I'm talking 10 years ago and she's actually the one that's quoted on the back of my book now because she's kind of watched my business and watched these horses and started to realize oh you know it does work um and you know and she will outwardly say track systems are great and I talk about that as an option now for horses with amenitis and similar problems which is amazing because you know having that professional say to you you go down you can go down this route too um even just for my this one vet and all her clients will save all of those horses potentially so yeah like my mission is to get more to, you know get the word out there and get other people realizing these things yeah yeah and I have to say I, I have just the most amazing vets in the world who have been incredibly supportive <laughs> I know that there that's not it's hard because it's it's not always the case but um no I have a really great so we have a really great support system here in Massachusetts so and it's great. It sounds like you do too. It's it that is a huge, huge help. Yeah, it's massive. Because I have people like you know that will ring me for livery or for consults and stuff, and they will say, "My vet has said this," and I'm like, "Oh, can I speak to your vet?" <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and it, it is it's really really hard, and not just vets, and not just you know trimmers saying their opinions. Other people on your yard, you know, when you're at a livery yard or a boarding facility, whatever you wanna wanna call it. And you've got, you're the only person there with your barefoot horse and putting it out um, when everyone else's horses stays in. I mean, in the UK at the minute, when it rains like it is today, the majority of the horses won't get any turnout at all because people don't want their fields to be trashed and because people think the horses don't want to go out. So they just end up staying inside. And then those select few that have started to learn the other way that will then be still putting their horses out will get everybody else on the yard you know, looking down their noses at them saying, oh, you're so cruel putting your horse out in that weather. You know, he should be inside in his bed and his pyjamas tucked up. <laughs> um, when, you know, that's just completely humanising the horse and not thinking about their needs at all. But people just don't see it like that. And I think feeling attacked by the people around you. I mean, for me, especially like when I was a teenager, I would not have set up for myself and I would have just gone, oh, yeah, you're right. I'll bring her back in. And I think that happens a lot. People are just so sort of pressured by people around them. They, they don't want to make changes. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I mean, I think we could talk forever. There's so much more to discuss. And I, maybe we, if you'd be open to it, we could do like a, a second episode, like a part two. But before we wrap things up, I was wondering if you had any last minute things that you would want to mention maybe to owners or hoof care providers that are considering looking into using a track? Um, obviously I'd be really cheeky if they buy my book. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. I've written it as well because there is a niche, you know, there isn't another book other than, than Paddock Paradise. There isn't a book about it being in such a domestic setup in the way that, you know, like I wanted it to be a step to like step-by-step -step guide or how to do certain bits and, you know, go into the hows and whys a little, but not too much, you know, otherwise it'd be five times the size that mm. it is. You know, like like you said about us talking now, you know, it can go on forever. I mean, the, the biggest part of it as well is don't be disheartened. Don't look at all the big fancy tracks and think, well, I can't afford that. Or, you know, I don't have that amount of land. Um, I don't have that time. You know, my little one acre track for my with my electric fencing, with plastic posts that bent in the wind. And, you know, that that ultimately saved my horse's life. And I had that for, you know, a year and a half before 
I then built a slightly bigger one and started my yard and then bit the bullet and built the ones I've got now. You know, it doesn't all have to happen at once and you don't have to be intimidated by it. And also the key to these things working is management. It's not all the fancy bits that you can put into it. And if something isn't working, it's probably because you need to change something around the management of it, which, you know, does sometimes mean investing a bit more money, but it doesn't mean you have to, because I, when I started, I very much got into it like, oh, I need to do this and I need to do this now and this now, and it needs to all be big and fancy and extravagant when actually you're better off doing it step by step. And letting the horses tell you what works. Yeah, I know. They're our biggest critic and they're our best judge. So (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. Amazing, thank you. Yeah, I so appreciate it. And I hope that everybody goes out and buys your book. It's on. I know it's on Amazon and I know that people in the UK can get it right from you. Yes. That's awesome. All right, well, again, thank you so much. And I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you, you too. All right, I'll talk to you soon. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.